0: Well, that was a nice surprise. I didn't know Mike and Amanda were going to sing that song. Uh, That is Psalm 27, and that's the topic, that's the uh, text we're going to be studying today. And uh, the Psalms are often referred to as the hymn book of the Bible, and yet we don't have the tunes that they sang, these Psalms, to... And so that really helped us to, uh, to picture the psalm uh, in a way that is very realistic. Uh, I'd just like to say a word of prayer before we begin. Dear God, we thank you for giving us your psalms, Lord, for putting these words in the mouth of the psalmist and giving them to us to read and to sing. Lord, we we thank you for that. And we pray that as we do that, Lord, you will accomplish what you intended that word to do. Father, we pray that you will give us ears to hear today. Pray that you will give us hearts that will be conformed as we see your face more clearly. And Father, I I believe that this psalm is written to give us hope. So Father, I pray that you will do that today in a a profound way, and that it will give comfort to those who need comfort, Lord, and direction to those who need direction. We thank you for your word constantly there for us, to counsel us and to guide us, Lord, as a light shining in our darkness. We praise your name. Amen. Well, as I, as I began, I said that the, the psalms have been called the hymn book of the Bible. Uh, hymns, as a genre, all of the hymns of the church are a treasury that record the testimony of believers that have come before us through history. They are the personal thoughts and experiences of the brothers and sisters who have lived in this world in Christ before us and have recorded God's providence for that long and often difficult life journey. Some of these testimonies in hymn form, in song, proclaimed eternal truths so eloquently that they have been repeated and passed from generation to generation as precious heirlooms valued greatly by the family of God. These heartfelt hymns have struck such a resonant chord that they have been answered with the amen of the church. When we sing them today, we hear those precious truths, and we join that historic and eternal chorus of praise. The psalms are also referred to as a model for prayer. David's 27th psalm is surely one of those hymns, but it is more than just the hymns of the church. These are David's words, yes, and they have been embraced and shared by the church as precious and true, yes, but this hymn is also inspired by God, the Holy Spirit. So it is perfect for our comfort and our edification. So in the case, so in the case of this type of scriptural literature, a psalm, it is right and helpful for us to try to put ourselves in David's place and to try and feel what he is feeling as he prays and worships. And so if we approach the text that way today, it will be to our benefit. I'd just like to read the psalm as we begin. Uh, because it's a song, I want to uh, uh, read it all all together before we start uh, reading it piece by piece. The song wouldn't sound very good if you are saying one note at a time, would it? So we'll read it from top to bottom. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Excuse me. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O oh Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says, Lord, my, my heart says, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait on the Lord. This is God's Word, Psalm 27. As we begin to read the psalm, uh, I'd like to suggest that you keep this question in mind as we study the passage and the life of David. How can such a man who struggled with and fell into sin throughout his life and whose life was full of terrible trials and hardship say these things? The Lord is my light and my salvation. He said this, Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? He said this, Though war rise against me, I will be confident. He will hide me in the day of the trouble, in the day of trouble. How can such a man offer shouts of joy and sing? How can he be strong and have courage and trust the Lord? Let's see if we can find the answers to those questions as we read. The psalm begins The Lord is my light and my salvation. There is so much contained in this first sentence that many sermons could be preached on it alone. David calls God, my Lord, his personal king and sovereign. The great King David bows his knee to the King of Kings. He addresses God here by the covenant name Yahweh, the God revealed by the prophets who had given his covenant to the people and his law at Sinai and his particular covenant to David. David was a man and a sinner like you and I, and worse. Scripture records his foolishness, his covetousness, his deceitfulness, his lust, and his murderous heart. And David knew it. God had given David light. The Holy Spirit had opened David's eyes to see his sin. And David says this for us clearly in the 51st Psalm. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Then God gave David light to know what to do with his burden of sin. The gift of repentance, the desire to run to God instead of away from him. Hear verse 5 and 6 of Psalm 51 again. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. God then shone his light of mercy on David, causing him to rejoice in the freedom from his sin. Verse 8 of that same psalm reads, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. And so David says, Whom shall I fear? David openly confessed his sin, and he knew that his judge had pardoned his sin. David could walk in the light, as we read in John, the first chapter of John, walked in the light with no fear of being exposed. With that burden re- removed, he shouts with joyful praise, David's, lo- David's Lord, and I pray your Lord, is the Creator who said, Let there be light. He is the light in the life of men. And truly the light shone and shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So David exclaims with all believers, and we can exclaim, whom shall I fear? The passage continues, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. As we will see, David did not only have his spiritual battle with sin, but like you and I, he faced the trials and hardship of this life in this fallen, sinful, cruel world. Consider David, born in the lowest of positions, the youngest son with no birthright, appointed to the most menial job, watching stinky, boring sheep day after day, year after year. David was despised by his eldest brother. Listen to how he put him down and accused David when David wanted only to help. This is... uh, Eliab speaking. Now Eliab, David's eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the man. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left the few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and your evil heart. You have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? David was also uh, There's evidence that David was despised by his father also, and that was, in that, he was not even considered as presentable to the prophet Samuel. When Samuel asked uh, David's father to bring his sons before him to be consecrated, David wasn't even considered, David wasn't even there, he was an afterthought. So, in our attempt to join David in this psalm, I want to ask you, have you ever experienced the awful pain of rejection and false accusation from friends or family? Truly, David knew that pain. Through these trials, God sustained David, protecting him from the attacks of beasts as a boy tending sheep, protecting him in battle, in battle and choosing him as the heir uh, to as the heir to the throne of Saul. And so David, with this experiences, experience, has come to know and trust God, and he says, of whom shall I be afraid? David's trials in his life were unrelenting. Hear this. And uh, as I read this, uh, a, a commentator I respect says that when David uh, is speaking here, he is uh, in the genre of the psalm, he may be speaking in hyperbole. So uh, if this is not intended to be a direct historical account, but uh, it's more to e- express the feeling of uh, the most intense woe. David's trials in life were unrelenting. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise up against me, I will be confident. Throughout David's life, he was the target, indeed, of assassination plots. And he is almost continually drawn into conflict after terrible conflict. David's beloved com- country had a terrible leader, who almost destroyed the country by his terrible leadership. Can you sympathize with David? If we can sympathize with David, then we can learn from his experience with God. We can observe this key fact, that God did not remove him from the trials of life, but sustained him through those trials, and never left him. Let's examine David's response to God's faithfulness, and by that, we can learn the response that we can have when trials come upon us. These are David's words. One thing I have asked the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Do you notice what's missing here? David is not asking, firstly, that the the, uh, problems that he's having will be removed. He is asking that he may see the face of the Lord and dwell in his house forever. An important thing we can see from this passage is that David is lifting his eyes from the trial that is right in front of him, the temporal problems that he has, and he's looking to the face of the Lord. In fact, he's looking to eternity, his eternity in perfect peace with God when all sin will be gone all trials will be gone, all pain and death and sorrow. This is the model David gives us. And this is the right and common response of the born-again believer, speaking from his new heart. David lifts his eyes from all his concerns to seek God. He expresses the priority of knowing God and learning and meditating on all his wonderful attributes. God, in his mercy, has revealed himself to us so that we can know him intimately. God's revelation to us, his scripture, is the way he communicates and ministers to us. God promises that his word is powerful and effective and sufficient for that purpose. As we learn and remember God's perfect power, knowledge, and goodwill toward his children, we can progressively obtain David's confidence in our God. And here he expresses that confidence, picking up in verse 5. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent. Sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. David responds by proclaiming the faithful name of our Lord. This is what every man was created to do, and it is David's and our highest purpose. Then David exercises the privilege of every believer, and, and the privilege every believer has, to call out boldly to the Father in prayer. He says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me. Answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says, My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Here David models prayer. Beginning with adoration, David's prayer now continues in supplication, recognizing that God calls us to prayer and that our prayers are effective. David humbly pleads for God's mercy. This may at first seem to express a doubt that God will be faithful and complete what he's begun in David, but David's prayer transitions quickly to thanksgiving with a confident prayer that God is his Savior and he will never abandon him. Here David expresses this in verse 10. For my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. When every last earthly comfort is removed and our resources are exhausted, we can know that God will never leave us. Teach me your way, O Lord, verse 11, and lead me on the level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Note that God does not remove all of David's trials, but David's prayer expresses confidence that God will be faithful to continue to lead him through these trials, and that is God's promise for us. Wait for the Lord, verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This waiting is the confident anticipation of God's fulfillment of his promises. This waiting is not simply passive, but it is the act of seeking of God and enjoying the means that he has provided to grow us in his grace. These common means are the private study and meditation of God's word, the hearing of God's word preached, prayer, and the practicing and participating in the fellowship of God's church where the believer is baptized, participates in communion, and can receive the counsel and care of his or her elders and his bro- their brother and sisters. As we come to a conclusion in this sermon, we can answer the question now of how the sinful and troubled man, David, can express hope and joy in the midst of the trouble of his life. David modeled for us the believer's response. First, he humbled himself before God, he repented of his sin, and he believed God's promises. Then David lifted his eyes from the trial and sought the face of God. David recounted the many blessings and the many providences that God had given him, and he remembered his experience of God's faithfulness in the past. Then God, uh, then David looked beyond to the promised eternal life of perfect reconciliation and peace with God, this is the, the believer's response. If you are in the midst of a trial and you are doing your best, waiting on God and are suffering, I would like to give you another source of encouragement. You know, I'm going to read you some uh, some of the comforting passages from Scripture, but I, I want to point out that these passages are not like a mantra that we just repeat over and over habitually. And they're not a magical incantation like abracadabra that fixes everything automatically. Instead, they are the truth that we must replace the lies that uh, we uh, believe in in error, that we must repeat to ourselves over and over and to each other over and over. Do you know, human beings, fallen human beings, are slow to learn. And one of the ways, unfortunately, that we have to learn is by repetition. And often this is why God, knowing us better than we know ourselves, will uh, give us the recurring loop of problems to help us to learn and to strengthen us and test us for the next trial that comes our way. I'd just like to read some of these passages for you as we uh, head toward the end of this message. Uh, I'm going to begin in the book of Romans. These are the words of God. I'm, I'm just about finished with my words, and I'd like to, for God to be able to speak to your heart. Would you listen as he comforts us? From Romans 6, We know that our old self was crucified with him, as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Romans 8 reads, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians encourages us again, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In the book of Hebrews, the writer uh, quotes uh, the prophet Jeremiah, and he applies these promises directly to the New Testament church. That's to you. Again, in he- Hebrews 7, we read this. For on one hand, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made, this one was made a priest with an oath and by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in the office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews chapter 6. I pray that this will be a balm to your soul. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, being patiently, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to his heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a pure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this last scripture for you is from Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. That is where my sermon ended. Until... I started reading something recently, and it, this is sort of tacked on to the end of the message, so I hope you can forgive that, but I think it's important for us to hear. Um, you heard me mention before that if you are struggling, and you're waiting on the Lord, and you're calling out to Him, I'd like you to hear Uh, A commentary on this passage by Charles Spurgeon and uh, I would like to share this great preachers comforting words as we close Uh, Charles Spurgeon was uh, um, was remembered as one who suffered with melancholy as they called it in those days we might call it depression today and uh, these were recurrent bouts throughout throughout his life and Charles Spurgeon Like our Savior was one who can sympathize with us when we are down. He said, Beloved, the gifts of grace are not immediately enjoyed by new believers coming to Christ. We are saved by a true union with Him, but it is by remaining in that union that we later receive the purity, the joy, the power, and the blessedness, which are stored up in Him for His people. Notice how our Lord states this when He speaks... This to the Jews in the 8th chapter of the Gospel of John. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold on to my teaching, you are truly my disciples. Then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We do not know all the truth at once. We learn it by remaining in Jesus. Perseverance in grace is an educational process by which we fully learn the truth. The emancipating power of that truth is so gradually perceived and enjoyed. The truth will set you free. One chain after another breaks, and we are truly set free. You that are new to the Christian life may be encouraged to know that there is still something better for you. And might I add, even if you're old in the Christian life, you may be encouraged to know there's something better for you. You have not yet received the full reward of your faith. You will have joyful views of heavenly things, as you climb the hill of spiritual experience, as you remain in Christ, you will have further uh, firmer confidence, richer joy, greater stability, more communion with Jesus, and greater delight in the Lord your God. Infancy is troubled with many evils and problems, from which manhood is exempt. It is the same in the spiritual as in the natural world. There are these degrees of attainment among believers. And the Savior here motivates us to reach a high position by mentioning a certain privilege, which is not for everyone, who says they are in Christ, but only for those who remain in him. Every believer must remain in Christ, but many have hardly earned the name yet. Jesus says, if you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. You have to live with Christ to know him and the longer you live with him the more you will admire and adore him yes and the more you will receive from him grace for grace truly the person who is only a month old in grace truly to a person who is only a month old in grace Christ is most blessed but these babes can hardly tell what a precious Jesus he is to those who have known him for half a century to them Jesus grows sweeter and dearer fairer and lovelier, lovelier, day by day. Not that he improves in himself, for he is perfect, but that as we increase in our knowledge of him, we appreciate more thoroughly his unparalleled majesty and excellence. How How vividly do his old acquaintances exclaim, he is altogether lovely. Oh, that we may continue to grow in the knowledge of him in all things who is our master that we may treasure him more and more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. Lord, we pray that uh, you will help us to respond as believers with uh, hope and confidence and joy. Father, we pray that you will lift our eyes to you and that you will... uh, That we will, in fact, yearn for the day when we will be with you eternally. Father, I pray for comfort for each person here uh, that are in trial. And we know that there's trials coming for many of us, of which we don't know. Help us to be confident and ready, Lord, as your word has prepared us today. I ask for your blessing on the preaching of your word. Amen. We hope that you will uh, stay and, and join the fellowship meal, and uh, don't forget, don't forget to say so long to the uh, drivers.